0: Brain freak out because I played a different song. I know when I listen to some podcasts and they have different songs, it's like, whoa, this is weird. It makes everything seem new. So maybe you enjoyed it, but. Anyway, welcome back to the show. I'm Evan Brand, your host, and last week I was talking about some interviews that I was going to be posting with my book, Rim Rehab, that's all about sleep and fat loss and hormones and neurotransmitters and stress and acupressure and sensory deprivation tanks and all of these different alternative therapies and herbs and adaptogens and things that I use and recommend to my clients for fat loss and sleep quality and sleep quantity. So... Uh, the episodes that are up with the book they now come with the book. It's about four hours worth of interviews that I've done for the over the past couple weeks. It's with my friend and uh, naturopathic dr Tim Gersmar, Wendy Myers Beverly Meyer, and my friend and chiropractor Dr. Tony Maxwell and his wife who's also a chiropractor Dr. Leslie Maxwell. We get into the physical aspects of what could be preventing you from getting good quality sleep or if you have pain we kind of go over pain management 101 in those interviews and then with Beverly and Wendy we cover toxins and how to remove those and also some alternative therapies um, essential oils different types of herbs and uh, flowers that you can use to benefit you. And then with Tim Gerstmar, we talk about adaptogenic herbs, and then we talk about some gut issues and stressors and other environmental things that could be affecting your sleep and preventing you from attaining fat loss without you knowing it. So, me personally, not too concerned with fat loss, uh, pretty lean, but I had a lot of brain fog issues coming off a third shift and coming from the mainstream diet that I've worked out, and sleep is not just important for sleep, you can't be optimal so whether you're a business person, entrepreneur, or somebody else with a podcast listening, you have to be on top of your game, and you can't do that if you're sleeping poorly, or if your quantity or your quantity is not enough. I just said quantity twice, didn't I? Well, quality. You know what I mean. All right. Well, enjoy the show, and if you would check that out, you can, rimrehab.com, and then if you want to, write a review on iTunes for the show I know it's much easier to just listen to me and skip this little message and question, but for providing free content, that's all I ask. So I look forward to seeing your review in iTunes, and let's get into the show with Dr. Rodney Ford. All right, we are back with Dr. Rodney Ford. You all requested him, and you thought he was an awesome guest, and I did too, so he is now back. So Dr. Rodney Ford, hello, sir.
1: Hello, Evan. Great to be back here.
0: It is. So tell people a little bit about yourself again, and then we're going to get into the fun stuff if they didn't hear our talk the first time.
1: Well, first of all, I'm a doctor. I'm an MD. I've got a doctorate. I'm a professor, a gastroenterologist, and board-certified allergist. And I've been running clinics in allergy and gastroenterology for over 30 years.
0: And you live in New Zealand, and we just talked about you're going into winter as we're going into summer and spring and summer here and that is amazing that that's possible so that's pretty neat
1: yes but we're a global community and what i find in my clinic in new zealand and my children's clinic people find the same things in the united states and the uk everywhere around the world this is a universal problem food allergy and food hypersensitivity
0: absolutely. Everybody's affected and everybody needs these answers. So that's kind of what we're getting into today is just talking about foods and how they're affecting us and how they're killing us. So where do you think we should start?
1: I think we should first start about recognizing and honoring the food chain, the farmers, the people who actually put the food in the supermarkets and on our plates. It is an incredibly difficult thing to produce enough food for the populations that are craving for food and first of all food is good and without food we are done and as the problem is that as the foods become more and more mass-produced more and more refined then the foods are as well as nourishing us damaging us and that's the difficult balance i'm not saying that all foods are bad but so many people are eating a poor diet not by choice but because economic and social circumstances dictate that and also knowledge our parents my mum she died about 10 years ago she was a great cook and she nurtured me and my siblings and my dad and she did the best she could taught by guess who her mum and just because our mothers can cook and buy food doesn't mean to say that they know what is best for us and what is the most nutritious way to go and things have changed over the time Evan 30 40 50 years ago people would go out and buy fresh fruits and vegetables they'd buy meat from the butcher and there wouldn't be as many choices there certainly weren't as many packet foods and tin foods and convenience goods but now we can buy food much more readily it's already pre-processed, we put it in the microwave, buzz it and eat it, or we just unpack it and eat it and not really honouring where it came from and what it's doing for us. So I think those huge changes over the last three or four generations are now killing us earlier. And now for the first time, people are dying before their parents. People are dying earlier than their parents would and so we are sort of in a more negative spiral for health because of our foods and in addition to all of that the food allergies are getting worse and worse more and more prevalent and we have an epidemic of food allergy so not only is the food chain deteriorating but it is harming us more and more so that is the global situation
0: yeah, it's uh, it's pretty dire. I mean, the first thing you said that stands out to me is that we've kind of lost the sacred nature of food, right? So that was always sort of a thing to where if you were to kill a deer, for example, you would have appreciated that animal very greatly. But now there's no connection to the actual animal, where it existed. I mean, even if we are purchasing grass-fed beef— most people probably still didn't see that animal. So I think maybe that's the first step if they are on this path of health already and they do have the diet part figured out that trying to get closer to the source, even closer to the source, would probably be a good step to take.
1: Yes, so having prefaced my information with that, I've been doing food allergy in my clinic and in the hospital as associate professor of pediatrics for over 30 years. And when I first looked at food allergy, I was a junior doctor. I was walking around the wards or doing my ward rounds and coming across quite a lot of children who were admitted with severe eczema and their skin peeling off, scratching at night, their parents distressed and nobody knowing really what we can do for these children other than slather them with moisturizers and steroids. And the mothers were telling me, they said, Dr. Ford, I think my child's allergic to dairy, or I think my child's allergic to wheat, or I think my child's allergic to eggs. And so I brought this information to my senior colleagues and said, look, Prof, I think that these children are suffering from food allergy and surely we need to change their diet. And I was met with disbelief. And in those times, there were articles written saying, is food allergy fact or fiction? And it really annoyed me because these mothers seemed to know what they were talking about. But my medical senior colleagues at the time were dismissing this as nonsense. And so I was challenged by prof to study it and do a double-blind challenge on food allergies. And that set my path on this whole crusade really I'd call it of food allergy and I did show by double-blind randomized controlled trials that the children with eczema with hives with also behavior disturbances were reacting to the foods that they were being fed and when we took them off those foods they got better when we challenged them with those foods they got sick again and I wrote this up in several papers I presented it to my medical colleagues and they although they intellectually heard what I was saying it didn't alter their habits they still didn't diagnose food allergy they still didn't recognize it and I was the only person in our department who was taking these food allergies seriously and the crime is that at least one in four children and probably more in adults are intolerant to some of the foods they are eating and it is one of the most common causes of chronic ill health and it is one of the most common things that is completely ignored by the mainstream medical fraternity.
0: What is their problem?
1: I don't know, Evan. I don't know why it's not really embraced. There are special journals on food allergy. There are conferences on food allergy. There are special foods produced for food allergic children. There's no lack of data, but it is this belief, this, this thought that – if anybody i'm a pediatrician remember so i see predominantly children that if a child is sick and you can't explain it then it's either the child's either got a virus infection or if there's a behavior disturbance that the child is naughty so these naughty children with viruses are the way it is explained and there's one other thing evan that is a bit sad because in the 1970s now that's a long time ago isn't it that's uh, nearly 50 years ago There were two pediatricians, eminent pediatricians, one called Ellingham and the other, sorry, Ellingworth, and the other called Apsley. And both of these pediatricians wrote books about what they called the normal child. So what's happening in the normal family? And they found about 10% of children had eczema, that 10% of children had constipation and or diarrhea, 10% of children had behavior disturbances. And a whole lot of common symptoms that they said, well, this is childhood. This is childhood growing up and that's what it is. We can't do anything about it. But a lot of these symptoms that they describe as normal in these children actually can be tied back to food intolerances and food allergies. And still the voice of these mentors is echoing through the decades and still influencing the medical profession that children just get sick tough
0: Wow. So, I mean, does it have to do with money? That's what comes to mind is they're ignoring it because, I mean, is it true that they can get kickbacks by prescribing certain prescriptions and things like that?
1: <laughs> not in a, not in New Zealand. There are no kickbacks. I don't think it's to do with money, and I don't think that the medical professions, the general practitioners have got a vested interest in keeping people ill. That is a conspiracy theory. It's just time-consuming. And it takes quite a lot of time to go through a dietary history, go through the symptoms and understand what's going on. You have to do the right tests. And all of these things take time. When I see a new patient with food allergy, it takes me 40 minutes to sort it out. And then I have to see them again to work it out a bit more. We do tests. And this often can't be done in a five or 10-minute consultation with a general practitioner And also there aren't that many allergists around and the hospitals are overwhelmed so the general practitioners won't refer on or if they do refer on in our country anyway, often these referrals are bounced back without anyone seeing the child. And therefore there's a scarcity of people with any knowledge and there's a scarcity of time to be seen in the medical room. So I think that it's easy to dismiss it as not Existent, And I call that deliberate neglect or deliberate denial um, that uh, people are aware of the food allergy but just don't want to go down that path.
0: Right. So what you're saying is we need to clone you about a thousand times then.
1: Well, we need to educate people through medical school. One of the interesting things in my career with this food allergy is that eczema – first of all, we'll talk about eczema – or eczema you like to call it i think in the states in some places this is a condition where the skin is inflamed it's scaly itchy and the children scratch till so they bleed they cry because it's painful they feel uncomfortable and distracted all the time they have behavior disturbances because they just can't concentrate because of the skin is causing them upset and often there are other conditions going along with the eczema including asthma rhinosis rhinitis and other allergies now it's very clear that 80% that's 8 out of 10 children with eczema is a children under say 2 or 3 years of age it's a food related problem eczema is a symptom it's not a disease it's a symptom of something else going on but the adult dermatologists certainly in New Zealand and i think throughout the globe deny the link between foods and eczema and when someone goes to see a dermatologist usually they're told if they ask say doctor is this uh, anything to do with foods they'll be told no it's not that there is no link between eczema and eczema and food allergy but that's quite contrary to what we see in our clinic 80 percent out of eight out of ten children who present with eczema we can find the food or foods that trigger it take them off those foods and their skin gets completely normal and the babies who come in to see me those are under a year of age I can confidently tell the parents that within a month that their baby's skin is going to be perfect and if it's not perfect I'm very disappointed because that's my experience so it's difficult when the dermatologist who is teaching in the medical school are teaching that foods and skin are unrelated and i think it goes in the gastroenterology field as well you would expect foods to be related to gastrointestinal disease but usually this is this link is denied as well
0: that's incredible that's that's really sad so i mean when somebody hears all this they get disempowered and they feel like god the system is just screwed i have no option but it's actually quite the opposite we have the choice to empower ourselves so what's the direction that we have to go i mean does this all eventually go back to your books and everything about gluten zero is that the ultimate top of the food chain (laughs) uh list of instructions for people
1: we'll talk about gluten a bit later the as a baby the first foods that they really get exposed to is dairy, egg, and nuts, and they can get that exposure through their mother's breast milk. Of course, we like to see 100% of babies breastfed. I know it doesn't happen 100%, but that's the aim. And I know that mothers are attempting to breastfeed for as long as practicable, at least past six months. And during that time, the baby gets exposed to the fragments of food that come through mother's breast milk when a mother a breastfeeding mother is eating as the food goes through her gut small fragments are absorbed whole into her bloodstream and then that gets delivered to the breast milk and the baby drinks that and the idea behind that immunologically is that the baby is exposed to tiny amounts of these food fragments from in mother's breast milk and her or his immune system can begin to grapple with these foreign proteins begin to what's called developed tolerance, immunological tolerance, and that when it comes time for the baby to be fed these foods by its own mouth, then the baby will be able to eat these foods, know about the tastes already, because that's already been uh, forewarned through breastfeeding and the immune system already knows about these foods and therefore the baby can have these safely. However, there's a breakdown now because it turns out that the immune tolerance That the child develops is triggered by the bacteria in the baby's gut now interestingly a baby newborn born naturally through the vaginal birth canal the baby is exposed and contaminated or inoculated by the mother's bottom bugs her poop and when the baby has that poop in his or her mouth and swallows that then that poo actually colonizes with all the bugs in it the baby's gut but if that doesn't happen if that uh, inoculation from the mother doesn't happen then the baby gets bugs from other places which aren't necessarily as healthy for the child and it's thought that Getting the wrong bugs gives the wrong signal to the immune system and that the allergic switch that the baby is born with is left on and the baby is more likely to develop allergy rather than tolerance to the foods coming through mother's breast milk.
0: Dr. Ford, I can't help but laugh here. (laughs) Are you saying that if a woman's butt is dirty when she has a child, that that is is what 's causing the infection am i Am I hearing that right that if it was clean, then that issue would not happen of the baby picking that up
1: that's right, so as obstetrics has become cleaner and cleaner, and everyone 's using sterile gloves, sterile wipes the, the, the labor room is sterile, and we don 't want any transfer of any bottom bugs to the baby, then that is deleterious to the but the baby needs these bugs. And as soon as the baby's born, the baby needs to be contaminated with all of mother's bugs from all of her orices, from her mouth, from her skin, and from her bottom. And there's an interesting study showing that pacifiers or dummies, those things that the babies suck to, calm them down a bit. If the mother and or dad cleans that pacifier by picking it off the floor and licking it themselves and putting it into the baby's mouth, that those babies have less infections than the pacifiers that are cleaned and sterilized in hot water or or sterilants or washed with soap and then given to the baby. So the cleaner you keep your baby, the more liable they are for recurrent infections.
0: That makes so much sense. I mean we've talked a lot about probiotics and the natural healthy bacteria that we have. So that is that basically what we're doing is we're kind of transferring some of this healthy flora over by the mouth? Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. So every orifice needs to have their own bacteria and the ones that your mum has got are probably the best ones for you as a baby. And if you don't get those, you're more open to – getting food allergy and other allergies and interestingly with the seri- with a caesar section okay these babies born by an incision by a knife everything sterile the baby is plucked out of the mother without going through the birth canal these children do not get any opportunity to get the poop from the mum and these babies have been shown to have 25% more chance of developing food allergy
0: interesting so avoid c section at all costs then is there anything that you know of that that could change or affect that for a c section to have to happen like is there any preventative measures that you've learned that that's in your your field
1: not really i think i'd leave that to the obstetricians certainly it is important for the seizures to carry on about 20% 25% of babies are born that way and to interfere with the obstetrics um decisions on that is not my place at all but it is important that these babies are protected. And that's why we give the probiotics to these babies. And I suggest that any Caesar baby is given a mixture of probiotics from day zero. And there's good evidence to show that if there is a family history of allergy and eczema especially, the baby should be treated with a probiotic from day zero and probably through to two years of age every day given a probiotic, and I, I would suggest a wide-spectrum one with lots of different bugs in it that we know that are beneficial to the child.
0: Absolutely. Do you take probiotics yourself right now?
1: I do. I do. I take one every couple of days because the the beneficial bacteria have a tough time to survive and reproduce, and you're pooping them out all the time, is co- of course. I read an interesting thing the other day that somebody is suggesting and probably other people have heard this that your appendix that is that little organ at the end of your what's called ilium that it is there for a reason. It's not there just to give you an infection and the reason is that is it is the bank or repository for all of your good bugs and when you have a severe infection diarrhea and you lose all of your good bugs that you can get them reseeded from the appendix once you're better again.
0: Right. So you say you take it every couple of days. Or are you just trying to avoid like some bacterial overgrowth? Because you can have too much of a good thing, right?
1: You can. And people can get a bacterial overgrowth in their gut, which is uncomfortable. And that certainly can be helped with the healthy um, probiotics. Sometimes you have to have an antibiotic as well. But overgrowth of bacteria in the gut is one of the problems but this that's not particularly a food allergy issue but i'm a gastroenterologist as well and looking out for that problem all the time so we'll move on to this uh, eczema a bit more and how do you tell how, how do you know if your baby has got a food allergy and one of the difficulties in diagnosing food allergy is that the symptoms of food allergy aren't particularly specific If you think back to when you last had a viral illness, a flu or something, you would have had a headache, sweating, uncomfortable aches and pains, maybe a rash, maybe tummy pains, could be diarrhea. You just feel moldy and unwell. None of these symptoms are specifically saying, hey, I've got a virus illness, but the combination of them make you think, oh, well, maybe I have got sick. And if you get better from it quite quickly, within a few days or a week, then you know probably it's an infection. If you don't get better from all of these symptoms then it might not be a virus at all it might be a food allergy and food allergy comes up on us very slowly as the foods begin to react with our immune system we can slowly get unwell and it can be so slow that we get used to being sick and there are so many sick tired and grumpy people around who don't even know they're sick because they're habituated to the symptoms now that's not going to happen quite as much in little babies who develop eczema the eczema that develops, how do you know what food it is? How do you know what food to exclude initially from the mother's breast milk and then later on from their diet? Because as they get habituated to eczema, as the parents get used to treating the eczema and they've been told that the eczema is just a disease and not a response to food, how do you know what foods are going to be causing that? Now, it's quite easy actually because there are a number of foods that are very commonly causing eczema. One is egg, and funnily enough, well, as a joke, we sometimes call this eczema egg because so many children, 80% of children with eczema in the first year of life are egg-allergic. And they particularly present with eczema on their faces. They've got dry, scaly, itchy cheeks. They often have bad what's called cradle cap, and they often have bad rashes under their chin and on the top of their chest. And it's often called a dribble rash, but it's because of the allergens in in the saliva or the food that's been dribbled down onto their skin. And often they have a nappy rash, a bad nappy rash. Just when I was a student, I was taught about nappy rashes, that these babies had very nasty burned bottoms. And I was told that it was due to the parents' poor care and that the parents didn't change the nappies enough, and that it was blamed to be a poor parental care issue. But that's not the case. I don't believe that at all, because the parents are very careful to look after the babies. And the foods that get into the baby's mouth, they can get into the baby's blood, they can therefore get into the baby's urine, and you can imagine that if the food is causing an allergic reaction and the children wee into their nappies or their diapers... And that we is sitting on their skin for 20 minutes, maybe uh, more, and, and uh, irritating them that they can get actually an allergic reaction to the food proteins in the urine. And I think that is the number one cause of the diaper rash in these babies.
0: That is probably one of the most mind-blowing things I've ever heard. That's amazing. You're going to put the diaper cream industry out of business by this podcast.
1: I hope to. And the other thing that I've been – I haven't got data for this, but I speculate. I've often wondered why the eczema is predominantly in the sweaty areas, under the chin, in the folds of the arm, and behind the knees in the, in the folds of the knees. And people have said, well, it's just the sweat irritating the skin. Well, how can it be? Most children don't have the sweat irritating the skin. And again, I think it's because the small amounts of food proteins come through the sweat and they accumulate in these creases that other areas that sweat, it can be wiped off quite easily and quickly, but the sweat accumulates in the folds. And with small amounts of the allergen in the skin folds, that's going to irritate the skin and cause an allergic reaction in the skin folds.
0: Wow. So my question is, as far as testing, whether we're talking about babies or adults with testing, are you familiar with the Cyrex labs testing, the array number four to test for uh, cross-reactive foods and things like that? Is that something people should be taking or are there certain tests that everybody should be getting?
1: I am aware of the Sirex test. They're not available in New Zealand yet. They will be in the future. They look for IgG antibodies. They don't look for IgE antibodies that I'm aware of. In food allergy, you can react in two different sorts of ways. One is immediate. That means you have the food and within 10 minutes or so, you are actually reacting with hives, welts, maybe swelling, irritability, can be vomiting. And those are what's called IgE reactions. Those can be tested for by skin prick testing, which is a very easy test. You can do that from three months on. And when you put a tiny amount of food on the skin, usually a diluted food, and prickle it into the skin, in about five or 10 minutes you'll get a wheel reaction and you can say, well, hey, this child is immediately reacting to egg, milk, or nuts, peanuts, soy, wheat. And you can give an immediate answer. And in my clinic every day, We do skin prick testing on these children and that guides us about what the mother's diet or the child's diet should be. However, there are other sorts of reaction called delayed onset reactions. That means you have the food and after half an hour, an hour, three or four hours, or even the next day you react. And those are not IgE reactions. These slow onset reactions do not have a positive skin test. They have negative skin tests, and they are mediated by a different sort of immune system, usually IgG antibodies and sometimes cellular immunity. So you cannot test for delayed onset reactions with skin prick testing, and that's where the Cyrex-type tests are available. And you can't test for gluten with a skin prick test, but you can test for wheat allergy with a skin prick test.
0: So it would be a good idea to probably get both then?
1: Well, it depends on the age. I first of all, it's very simple and easy for me to do skin prick testing in my in my clinic. You can get that done at most labs and people who are interested in food allergy, it would be a good idea for those people to learn how to do skin prick testing. It's very simple, you get straightforward answers, it's not dangerous, and I would encourage more and more people to actually do that in their offices. It's not widely done in New Zealand, and I'm one of the few allergists in our city that will do their own skin prick tests. The problem with food allergy is it goes undiagnosed. And you can imagine that if you've got bad eczema and the parents say, well, look, I've heard that milk allergy is a common thing. Take my child off milk or take the mother off milk and nothing happens. They say, well, it wasn't a food allergy. But if it's milk and egg and nuts causing the problem, you've got to come off all of those allergens, not just one, to get better. And therefore, often a trial is done and it's not done for long enough. It's not done strictly enough. And it's not done with a wider enough foods. And therefore, the disappointment often with the parents is that they don't see their child getting better because they're not encouraged enough. And, of course, if you have a test, a positive test for a food, it gives you much more confidence to go for longer and harder with the food elimination. And sometimes it can take up to a month. So people have to stick with that. The other thing we have got to do if we're going to change the food, I use a lot of uh, 1% hydrocortisone or sometimes some stronger steroid on the children with severe allergy because you've got to get the skin better before it can heal when you're off the food because the symptoms of eczema is itching and then the child will scratch and the scratching will damage the skin and then the skin won't heal because of the constant scratching And it's hard to get the skin better just on diet alone on the initial couple of weeks. So you want to give the child some strong, well, I like to see some not heavy duty, but uh, constant steroid medication over that two weeks to get the skin healed before the food uh, elimination kicks in.
0: Right. You just, you got to give some leeway time too. So you're saying a month, it could take up to a month to get these foods out to actually notice the eczema go away.
1: It depends how old the person is. The younger the child, the more quickly the response. And we see a good response within a week or even a few days in the babies who are six months old. But if you are 10 years old and you've had gluten problems and the gluten has been causing the eczema, then it can take up to six months. So it's difficult to be committed for that long and therefore having a test result showing that this is the uh, way to go is something which is very important and that it's not just a guess.
0: Yeah. There was a lady named Autumn in Canada, and she wrote a review for my show when you were on, and I wanted to read it to you. Just I, I thought you might enjoy it. She said that she had been suffering from symptoms of celiac, IBS, colitis, and a cascade of other health problems. And Without getting diagnosed properly, she got no relief from prescriptions, and she was told there was no cure for her problems, and then it was all in her head. And then she said that she listened to the first podcast that you and I did together and that her life has changed. And so she says, uh, if someone doesn't have a doctor like you caring for them, how can she or other people like her heal themselves or maybe some strategies that will help them along kind of their self-healing journey?
1: That's a great question. And I feel honored that she's sent you that letter and that I have given her some help and hope. I used to write a lot of medical journal articles and these double-blind randomized controlled trials. I've written over a hundred papers in the medical journals. And that goes out to the medical fraternity and it, really just seems to stop there since uh, these type of podcasts that you're doing Evan which is fantastic work and we have the Facebook Twitter we have YouTube we have a lot of ways of communicating with the population now and I believe that the community now is much more informed than the medical practitioners about allergy and food intolerances of course there are lots of different ways of attacking or dealing with this, but as the community becomes more and more educated and more and more confident about the food allergy and food intolerances, then I believe that they will demand higher quality services from the medical profession. It's not that the medical profession wants to deny people's food allergy. It's just that they don't know about it. They're not taught about it. And the gluten-related disorders we talked about last time, that's when gluten affects the body in other ways than celiac disease. That is so new thinking. And the old thinking is so entrenched that it's going to take a long time to get over this. And I've got a quote here from a guy called Max Planck. I don't know whether you know about Max Planck. He was a physicist and he got the Nobel Nobel Prize in physics in 1918. So this is over 1 nearly 100 years ago. And he wrote this. He said an important scientific innovation rarely makes its way by gradually winning over and converting its opponents. What does happen is that the opponents gradually die out. That was 100 years ago, and he had some really good ideas in physics, and they were just not accepted by the entrenched scientific mantra of those days. And he couldn't persuade them, and he felt that he was right, and he was just couldn't persuade them otherwise. And now what Max Planck had to say is common knowledge and accepted by all um, physics people. I'm interested in hearing about Max Planck again because my dad was a nuclear physicist and I came up in a scientific family and there was a requirement for a high level of proof for anything that us children said. And I can remember one day (laughs) that I was spouting off about something and dad says, Rodney, you're a font of unreliable information I thought ah well I better check my facts. and I thought that was in my teens and since that sort of rebuke from my dad I have made sure that what I have to say is backed up by good science and maybe that's uh, what's maybe cranky because despite the good science behind what I do there is this idea of science is a belief and there was another quote I read the other day. It goes something like this. The great thing about science is that the truth will um, go on despite people's non-belief. Because I can't see how you can make a science, scientist or a medical person can decide yes or no to believe something against the facts. And – it must be something of convenience and I've been reading another thing about medical guidelines as you know that more and more what are called medical guidelines have been developed and that is a way of dealing with symptoms a way of dealing with diagnosis a ways of dealing with medication and somebody who is very frustrated about this says these Guidelines are just that they are guidelines and advice. They're not tram lines. They're not railway lines We don't have to go along that narrow thinking. They are just ideas but what's happened is that many of the insurance companies have got behind these or or really um, hijacked these guidelines and put them into their own policies and if you haven't had these tests or you haven't had these symptoms then you haven't had that disease and therefore you don't warrant your insurance. So there's the guidelines have unfortunately tied up the medical fraternity. And if you, if everybody only followed the guidelines, there would be no progress because everything's been set in concrete and that's how it is and we're not changing. So we have to work outside the guidelines to actually make progress.
0: Yeah, so I mean, we're living in 2014 in the real world. You and I, and this information and stuff we're talking about. But you're saying the medical industry is living in something similar to 1950s still.
1: Well, in some regards, with certainly in the in in the 1970s, anyway, the food allergy is still not on the um, medical menu. It's not on the uh, most wanted list. Yeah. And cancers are bugs are, uh, bacterial infections, viruses, uh arthritis, those sort of things. But so many of the diseases that are called diseases today, and actually symptoms, when you call it when you call somebody irritable bowel syndrome, I mean what does that mean? It's been made into a diagnosis, but all it means is a bunch of symptoms that people have got. And once you've got so-called a diagnosis, then people aren't going to search any further. A bit like arthritis. You've got arthritis. That's the problem. But that is a symptom. And there often are foods causing these inflammatory conditions of the joints. And if you just accept that it's arthritis as a disease and accept the anti-inflammatory and pain relief that you're prescribed, you're never going to get better. There are so many gluten-affected people who have joint pains and aches that when they go gluten-free, they get better. So joint pains can be a symptom of food intolerance, food allergy, and not a diagnosis.
0: That's a good point. You know, actually, I got told that I had IBS a few years ago when I first started this whole podcast journey, and oh, there's no cure, you know, he wanted to prescribe me something. But in reality, I've cured it myself, and what I've realized is that, like you said, it's not like it's some disease that you just accept and you give all your power to. It's just something that I have to watch now that certain foods are going to be a trigger for me. So what you're saying is don't maybe you can use those terms or maybe you can hear those words from your doctor if it gets told to you but don't use that as sort of the the end of you you know use that to your advantage to try to leverage and figure out what's actually going on beneath the surface of the condition
1: exactly mhm one one little thing we should talk about is the a very strange name it's called the oral food allergy syndrome we should talk about that because that's an adult onset problem, and it is due to foods cross-reacting with pollens and uh, in, in your environment. One in four people have got allergies to pollens, to ragwort, to birch pollen, to grass pollens, those sort of things. And usually the symptoms from that is hay fever that, or allergic rhinitis, that is a runny nose and sneezing, maybe sore throat, runny, itchy eyes when exposed to those pollens. Unfortunately, quite a lot of those pollens cross-react with fruits and nuts. And as people get older in their 20s and 30s and 40s, a lot of people begin to experience when they eat an apple, for instance, they get a tingling or unpleasant sensation in their mouth or an itchy throat or even sneezing and sometimes swelling. And they can find that with nuts, walnuts especially, with apples and stone fruit. And then some other fruits at times and as time goes as the years go by some of these can get worse and worse and it's just because the chemicals in these foods is cross-reacting with the pollen allergy and your body thinks that you're eating pollen not fruit and one way over this or the major treatment for that is actually to cook the fruit or, or or nuts and the idea behind that is that the heat destroys the chemical that the body is mistaking for and so people can eat cooked fruits but not raw fruits
0: okay now when you're referring to chemicals are you saying like pesticides and things like that or you're saying no
1: no no i'm talking about nat the natural flavors and enzymes and uh those things in those fruits it's not a it's not a uh, pesticide or residue of any sort it is the actual makeup of course everything that we eat and are made up of is of molecules and chemicals so i'm talking in the wider sense
0: yeah okay that makes sense Yeah. So i mean i i hear the more that i've been on this journey rodney i i hear more about it seems to be that cooking the majority of your food is is kind of a good idea. A lot of the raw salad-eating people and the raw nuts and all that, there's a, there's a huge amount of people on that bandwagon, but from what I've seen, and maybe you can uh, back me up, is that it's seeming like more cooked things are actually more beneficial than what we're going to have less issues with.
1: Well, I would agree with that, Evan. Uh, I've read a lot about this and I'm challenged a lot about this. And there's a wonderful book out called Catching Fire, Why Cooking Makes Us Human. And it's a treatise about man learning to control fire. We're the only species that can control fire. And that controlling fire for tens of thousands of years, maybe hundreds of thousands of years, has allowed man to cook food. No other animal on this planet cooks food. And that has enabled our colons and small intestines to become smaller. So we don't have to, and we don't have to eat as much. You can imagine, you can see the buffaloes and cows, sheep, they have to spend most of their day either eating or digesting. That's because they don't cook their food and it's difficult to digest plant cellulose Takes a long time, a lot of eating, a lot of chewing, a lot of fermenting. But if you cook food, it doesn't require much absorption or not so much. And therefore, we can eat the food more quickly. We don't have to chew as much. We can eat more infrequently, like two or three or four times a day. We don't have to eat all day. And because it's easy to digest, our gut doesn't have to be as long. And therefore, we can put more of our biological e- effort into our brains. So it's thought that cooking over our development has made a huge difference to us, and we are now physiologically adapted to cooked food. I'm not saying that raw food is harmful or bad for you. I eat lots and lots of raw food, lots of uh, lettuces and uh, salads, those sort of things. Raw food's good. Raw food is not as uh, calorie-dense. You don't absorb as much. You can't absorb as much and therefore it packs you out in your stomach, gives you a feeling of satiety. But the goodness in the raw food is not as easily uh, available for your intestines to extract. Therefore, a lot of it just is pooped out.
0: Yeah, I've noticed myself if I'm, I don't know if you go through this, but maybe certain times in your life where excess stress or just different factors could be setting off your digestion a little bit. And so in those times that I experience, I'll just steam things. Like instead of just eating raw broccoli, I'll steam it instead, and I'll notice that that kind of helps keep that stuff at bay.
1: Yes, and of course the classic thing is broth, isn't it? And that if you're feeling unwell, then people will give you a broth or a soup, and you won't be able to uh, take much else, but you will be able to sustain yourself with this liquid food which has been cooked.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you want to go into any other topics or any other avenues of this whole thought process? We don't have too much time left, but I figured there's
1: something on your mind. Life is not static. We develop things slowly. And when a baby is born, the baby is naive to the environment, never, hasn't got any bugs and never had any food. As time goes by and we go through the decades, we are exposed to lots of different things. Earlier on, in our first year of life, we tend to be allergic, if we develop allergies, to milk, egg, and nuts, and maybe wheat and soy. As we get older, our immune system lets us develop tolerance, and often these food allergies are temporary and they go away, and by the time the child is four, five, six, seven, eight, most of these allergies have left. Unfortunately, nut allergy is a more persistent problem. And then often these children get unwell again with tummy pains, reflux, eczema, irritability, behavior disturbances. And the children who were prone to allergy in their first few years of life are more prone to this gluten intolerance in their later years of life. But often it's just thought, oh, well, I've got this milk allergy again. I've got another allergy. And the gluten allergy is forgotten about. I think that in the next decade there's going to be a lot more understanding how gluten is upsetting these people and it is difficult to get immune tolerance to gluten and this is one of the things I think we're going to be debating over the next decade next generation is should we develop immune tolerance to gluten and eat a food that's not very well suited to us because it's a convenient food and it is what is growing in our neighborhoods or Should we abandon wheat and gluten entirely and change to different crops and decide that we won't bother getting immune-tolerant to gluten, we will eat healthier and better choices? So I think that is one of the biggest questions that we will have to develop as a community.
0: Absolutely. What do you think is uh, maybe an empowering tip that you want people to take away from this whole talk today? (laughs)
1: Eat fresh fruits and vegetables, some meat and fish, some rice, and not too much other grain. Avoid sugar as much as you can. Never have a cola drink and avoid all orange juices as well because they're just loaded with sugar. Keep your sugar right down. If you are going to have sugar, get it from fresh fruits and vegetables.
0: Absolutely. How about stress?
1: (laughs) Well, stress makes you more of who you are and stress is going to happen to us all the more we stress about things we have increased adrenaline we have increased cortisone in our bodies and that makes us feel good initially but if we are continuously stressed we actually fatigue our adrenal glands and our our stress uh, we get exhausted from the Continual fight and flight mechanisms, and that's deleterious to our immune system. And it's been very clear that our immune system is down regulated by stress, and we are more prone to infections or prone to depression. So, stress is an important thing to eradicate. Our lives are stressful. And I heard some advice today if you stress, take out a child. Take a child out for a walk through the park and then see life through the eyes of the child that you were. And then children aren't stressed generally. They take uh, their life minute to minute. They're in the present. And if we live life more in the present than worry about our life stuff ups and the future hurdles, then we can be more at peace.
0: Absolutely. That's awesome advice. My lady, she works at a daycare here in town. She's a preschool teacher, and she works with kids every day, all day, and she loves it. And she says that it keeps her young. It keeps her thoughts happy. It uh, sounds like the military's flying over me right now. It's kind of crazy, but uh, – my lady says that just kids are—they're important to be around, and you know she had an opportunity to go for a different job, and she passed on it because she said that the kids just make her feel so good that she wouldn't want to miss out on that opportunity.
1: So I understand. I'm a pediatrician. I see children every day of my life, and they are a blessing to me. And I've done pedi- pediatrics because I know that I get more bang for the buck if I can get these children well, and they can live to a hundred years old, and they have. Uh, disease-free because of the advice that I've given them, then I feel that I have left a legacy for those families and those parents and those children. So that's what I'm doing, and this is why we're having a talk today because I feel that we can do so much more for these children in the way of healthy nutrition.
0: Absolutely, and you probably have less of a hassle dealing with uh, dealing with children instead of adults too. You know. That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure talking with you again. And uh, I I see that you and I are going to be having recurring conversations. So uh, hopefully that's not a problem for you.
1: I would look forward to that, Evan. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: All right. I realized my fiance was coughing in the background. She had a cold when I was recording this. So hope it didn't bug you too much. But, uh, you know, just one of those things that happens when you – run a podcast from your house. So, anyway, tons of good content in there. Dr. Ford is awesome. If you want to, you can check him out. Just Google Dr. Rodney Ford. He's got a group of books that he sent me that I'm going to be reading and reviewing, and then eventually I'll be giving them away. So, I have The Gluten Syndrome and a couple other books here by him. So, that's awesome. Well, if you want to, get notified when I give these books away and as well as my weekly updates... My newsletter on my website. I know most of you are on there already, but I'm sure there's a few thousand of you that aren't. So head over to notjustpaleo.com. You'll see the sign up box. As soon as you sign up for the email, you'll get my 35-page food guide that not only tells you what to eat, but why you're eating it. A lot of people just say, eat this, don't eat this, but nobody has a clue why. I think it's important to have a basis of knowledge for why you're eating certain things, what it does to the brain, what it does to the body, the gut, etc. So that's free. Why not? So when you sign up for the email list back at the website, you'll get that. And then you'll get my quick start guide too, which just talks a little bit about toxins and environmental design and things like that for optimal sleep. So you can go check those two things out, and I'll talk to you next week. So have a good one, and uh, make the best of the time that you have here while you can. So all right. Bye-bye.